Thanks, Corey. All right, I say this every week, and I want to do a really good job of it today. Um, get your Bibles out, because we're going to be uh, really anchoring ourselves in the Scriptures this morning. And if you're jumping into the series or you forgot from last week what we're talking about, we're, we're looking at wisdom. And, and wisdom, as we've been defining it, is, you know, knowledge applied, but more than that, it's, it's being able to navigate the complexities of everyday life where the moral arguments or rules don't seem to apply. It's, it's having an ability to, to uh, see things as they really are and have wisdom means to, to navigate those things well. And as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs because it's one of several books in the Bible which are called wisdom literature. They're designed to help us gain or glean an understanding of how to go at life in a, uh, a manner that will flourish and will grow, that our relationships will be healthy and that we'll avoid some of the pitfalls that we want to avoid in life. And today we're going to be talking about uh, something, and I have to add something of a parental advisor. We're going to be talking about lust. So there's some things, kids, if you're in the room, that I, I'm just not able to avoid, but I want to assure. Um, I, I would preach this the same if my daughters were in the room, and they're nine. Uh, to, to anyone watching on screen, I'm going to delay just long enough that you might, you know, uh, get your kids out of the room and maybe talk to them later. But there's some things that, that we need to talk about because lust is a big theme, not just in the book of Proverbs, as we'll see in a moment, but in the Bible as a whole. In fact, you can't get away from it. It's so apparent that, that if you don't have good handles on this, you're actually going to set yourself up for failure, which we understand from spending enough time in Proverbs, is setting you up for folly, which is the opposite of wisdom. And so we want to delve into wisdom this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Proverbs 6. Now, everything I'm reading will be on the screen behind me, but I'd love if you could have a finger in your Bible this morning. So Proverbs 6, verse 23 to 33. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. And disgrace will not, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Now, quick, quick uh, word to kind of set us up on the right foot this morning. Um, the author here, again, the authorship of this book attributed to King Solomon, uh, likely written to a group of school-aged boys, young men, to give them wisdom, the tools to navigate life well. Um, this is not saying women are bad and men, you, be careful. If you're reading it that way, this is built on a metaphor of, of what lust can look like if it's unchecked. And lust being uh, an un, uh, untamed, inordinate desire 
to crave a relationship, particularly that of a romantic or sexual one, to a point where it's you have to have it. He's saying you go down that road, it will lead you to destruction. These things are very apparent in the text in itself. But we got to get so much deeper today to really understand lust. And part of this message this morning, I actually feel very compelled, is is an apology to anyone probably 20, 30, or 40 years old who, like myself, if you've grown up in a church environment, you were raised in a purity culture that taught you that basically to have any kind of understanding of what is attractive in, in the opposite sex was almost a bad thing. And, and so you just kind of had to either, if you're really righteous, just look at the floor uh, or, or just kind of lie about it. And, and that's how you navigated life. And, and the Bible doesn't talk about lust that way. In fact, I mentioned earlier, it's all over Scripture. In fact, we have one book of our Bible that, that highlights it and celebrates it within the covenant relationship of marriage. That's called Song of Songs. Kids, read it with your parents. Um, parents, your kids now know about it, so you're responsible. Um, but it, it, there's... there's I could make you blush reading what's in that book. And actually, our modern-day translators actually pull back a little bit on what would be said in those pages because it is celebrating the, the abandon that somebody can have, the, the joy that they can have in looking at their partner in marriage. So when we look at lust, this is something so much deeper, something so much more. In fact, what, what's likely happening in this text, what the author, and my argument would be, what the author is keying in on is a subset of something much larger that is woven throughout the biblical narrative and deeply intentional for us to pick up on to understand the gospel. And that's this idea of, of desiring what's not for us to desire or an inordinate, inordinate desire. In fact, it goes all the way back to, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, God gives his commandments. By the way, I, I'd appreciate teaching it this way. He gives uh, 10 very simple commandments that are for all of humanity for their flourishing, for the flourishing in their relationship to God, each other, and themselves. And then he gives far more commandments to his people. But th this, is, this is a universal this is not just, well, I don't, I don't believe in the Bible, so no thank you. This is God's going, no, this is my design for humanity when he speaks these. And if you look at Exodus 20, verse 17, it says, You shall not covet, covet being a word that you use every day, right? Covet means to desire greatly, to pine over, to, to you know, uh, C.S. Lewis uses the words of whimpering for lust. It's this idea of, like, you have to have it. You are so craving and hungry for it. So to desire your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We, we see as a subset of, of coveting, of inordinate desire, is lust. Because he says, a, another relationship, a spouse. A, a person in that house, a relationship that's not for you and not for you to have. To set your heart's desire on that thing is to destroy the relationships that you have with that person, with yourself, and ultimately with God. Why? Because you're not designed for it. This is the trajectory we have to go when we talk about lust. Now, I, I'd break down our talk this way this, this morning. There, that's the nature of lust. What, how, what the problem that it creates, and, and ultimately, what does that mean for us? What do we learn from that? 
So, so first, the nature of lust. The nature of lust is very apparent back in our text, Proverbs 6. It, it, it's to crave something, to pine for it. In, in fact, the personified picture of lust is in J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books. If you know the character Smeagol or Golem, he's that twisted little creepy creature that, that has the, the ring of power. And he sits all day in the dark places caressing this thing going, my what? My precious Everything he wants and has in life is, is held in this little object. And that's, he's the epitome of, of a coveting heart of lust and desire. It, the nature of lust is to twist you inside to say, I need that above all things. I need that person, that relationship, that affection above all things. And, and I mean, we can talk about it this way. Let's break it down by nouns. Person, uh, person place, thing. I was like, oh, pastor, trying to explain English. I communicate for a living, but, yeah. You know, a person, this is, that, that person, their, their physical appearance, that their, their affection towards me, that the relationship we might have together, the, the chemistry, that's the word that goes around nowadays. If, if only I had that, then my life would be complete. And, and listen, I need to say this quick subtext to, to that point. We are in a culture steeped in this. Like, we are so steeped in, uh, in lust that, that we probably don't even realize that your battle against it is almost futile. That, that if, you know, and I have to say this again, I would say this to my nine-year-old daughters because stats would show that the earliest introduction to pornography is somewhere between the age of five and 11. And, and that we would know that this is a hundreds of billions of dollar industry that, that it actually shapes the clothing you wear, the movies you watch, the humor you use. It, it, it shapes everything about us as a culture. And yet we, we somehow think, and some of you have heard messages or sermons, that it's this idea of how we battle lust is just kind of like white-knuckling it through life. I was a youth pastor for over a decade, and, and I have to confess and repent of the way I, I preached to teens. It was like, boys, you're broken, so just keep your eyes steady down the road, and that's how you're going to make it. And they, they, You're just setting them up for failure. And then it was like, girls, and, and you're just going to tempt them with everything you do, so just stay away from boys. And what did we create? Like, awkward young men and women who didn't know how to do anything but lust for each other. Because there is something, the subtext of that whole culture was this. This is so great, you can't handle it. And what do they want? That. And that's exactly what our culture says. Anyone who's married in the room and watches the, you know, the passionate scenes in movies goes, that's not real. It, it can't be. People don't feel like that, act like that. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble if I run down this road too far. But, but the fact of the matter is, we know that the, the culture we are in is, is so steeped in this. It's saying, if you only had the right person, or the right body, or the right chemistry, or the right encounters, then you would be filled. That's not true. In fact, if you were to rewind and join uh, this, you know, the archives of the series, that we, we talk about marriage, and we've, you know, psychologists would point to the fact that what makes a marriage great, and they're actually pushing this back into the culture very subtly, very gently, because it's a repenting of what we thought was so great, is actually leaning into not the experience, but a covenant, a relationship which says, I'm here for you no matter what. That allows you to be free in every other aspect. 
Lust says, forget that. You can put lust not just into a person, but a thing. We know this to be true. Well, once I get that new job, once I get that new car, that new house, I I mean, we we have kind of trial-run practices in this. It's called window shopping. Anyone go to, like, show homes? It's a bad idea, whether you're a homeowner or not, because you're going to walk out of there coveting. And, like, just quick, let's quick rabbit trail. What does that do to you and your relationships? It, it causes you to compare. My, my house is as nice as this. My house is garbage. I hate my house. Like, you know, because the only way you can love and, and kind of build up the love that you are putting in your heart is to what? Villainize and demonize the other thing. You know, we, we live on a cul-de-sac, and, and, you know, a couple of years ago we had a neighbor we actually dubbed Mr. Jones because we felt like we had to keep up with the Joneses. Best car, best toys, nicest house. Dog was always behaved. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, classic suburbia. The weather's nice. We'd all go out and mow our yards, and he'd take off his shirt, rippling six-pack, and I'd be like, put it back on. <laughs> because I'm just... What? I have to now kind of hate you because I want everything you have. So in my heart, I'm like, he's probably a jerk. Because <laughs> we have to compare. We have to villainize and, and demonize. And so now I don't like myself. I don't like him. And ultimately, I'm, I'm frustrated with God. God, you gave me such. My grass is nowhere near like his. And it can be places, too. This is called wanderlust. You know, I just, I'm just getting back from vacation. We went to Seaside, Oregon, and I'm telling you, like, I was like, they need a pastor here, I'm sure. <laughs> and you laugh, but I was like, honey, like, <laughs> look for churches. Because I was like, I, I can make a life here. Ran by the beach, you know, slow, slow town feel. I'm like, this, this, like, this is where it is. Like, inside of me was the rolling boil of a desire that was saying, hey, your life could be better if. That's lust. That's inordinate desire. That's pining and whining and whimpering for something. You're like, if I only had, then my life would be good. And, and, and it's self-destructive. If, if you look at this, this is what he's saying in the text. Don't let, or, or sorry, don't be caught by her beauty. Don't let her smooth tongue capture you. Don't be captured by her eyelashes. I like that one. It's this idea of don't allow your thoughts and your ruminating ideas be one of, if I only had this, then I would be happy. And, and we, we've got entire industries built around this. I'm sorry if you're in marketing promotions. I'm not trying to villainize you. But you know it. And, 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 and it's in us because we are not filled in and of ourselves, but we are creatures meant to be filled. And so we are hardwired to look outward. That's why God speaks to us going, this is for all humanity. This is for the safety of you, your relationships, and ultimately your relationship with me. You are going to look for things to fill you. And, and here's how it creates a problem. It will twist you up. I mentioned earlier that the personification of lust, of inordinate desire, of, of covetousness. That's that golem character pining in the dark. He says it will destroy you. It's right there in the text. 
But all of us believe ourselves to be that one person who says, can a man or woman carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be weary? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And there's something inside of us that would be like, I think I'm the one. You know, I think I can do that. I think I can get away with it. Because the problem that, that lust creates, it creates a desire that is so big, so, so, it's, honestly, it's a craving that will overtake you. And this foolish, I can keep that in check mentality, eventually leads us to a place where this thing will ultimately break beyond its boundaries and enter and manifest into real life. That's why he's talking about adultery. Some commentators wrongly, and you've heard it from me, there are commentators who get things wrong when they make comments on the Bible, would say, this is just, you know, the author of Proverbs saying, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to enter into a relationship, uh, you know, outside of a, a marriage one, but it's another to have an adulterous relationship. You know, it's kind of like degrees of bad, and that's not what he's saying at all. When he says, uh, you, if, if anyone read this and got stuck, verse 26, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. If you read that, you're like, I don't understand it. That's okay. He, what he's essentially saying is this. You might think, oh, the consequences are what I can pay. But lust, inordinate desire, will always want to cash checks you cannot clear. You will always go too far. Evil always goes a step too far. And it says a, a wife will hunt down your life. It's not saying, you know what, uh, once you're married, women get really ferocious. It's saying it, th eventually there, there is a price you cannot pay. It will cost you everything. It will destroy you. And let me just say this from somebody who has the extreme privilege of sitting in, in private rooms and, and very confidential conversations with people who have made this mistake. It does. But there was something inside them that said, but it, it promised me everything. It told me if, if I pursued that relationship, if I got that thing, if I had that experience or encounter, or if, or if I had this, you know, affection, then I would have everything. And I went and I took it, and guess what I found out? It didn't. See, this is why Jesus speaks to lust as well. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 20. Oh, sorry, I lied. Chapter 5, verse 27. Some of us are surprised that Jesus speaks so directly to lust, but you, you, you have to understand he has to. Because there's something inside of us that, that again, that, that the problem that lust or, or inordinate desire, this desire to lean everything into uh, what we want and crave is so destructive is because we will all try to convince ourselves, but I'm the one who can keep it under wraps. We, we actually, it, it alludes to the fact that we're probably, you know, pious people within the community, in the audience that Jesus was speaking to who are like, you know, what I think and what I feel and what I entertain in the private places of my heart and my mind or my business alone. It, Jesus, I know it's only really what I do that matters. And he's like, not true. He says, but if you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman, you can reverse this, or a man with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
Jesus is saying, listen, not only do I, I care about your heart, your heart is the main thing. This is where all sinful action builds and, and, and brews. That, that, you know, no, listen, you can make a lot of bad choices in life, you know, qu- rather quickly. But when it comes to lust, this is not something you just fall into as it, it you know, builds into maturity, into adultery, into relationships. You know, y- you can go, oh, man, officer, I didn't, honestly, I didn't realize I was speeding. And that's truthful. But nobody wakes up and go, you're not my wife. Like, how did you get here? There, there is a progress here, and he's saying it's your heart, it's your lust, it's your desires. It's this manifested and brewed, it broke past the boundaries at some point and turned into something very destructive. But it was already destructive when it was already in the quiet places. And Jesus, he deals with that very ruthlessly. Now, some of us have been, and I'm alluding back to what I mentioned earlier, some of us have been taught the wrong things with this, and it was very much... You know, therefore, don't have attraction. In fact, you might have, like me, been raised in a, in a generation or a culture where, ladies, you were taught, like, you, you are a problem for men. So, like, wear layers. That's your job. Which, what? Diminishes you. And it was like, men, like, men it made you worse. It was like, you have no hope. So, like, eyes to the ground, boys. You know, hang out in small circles, like, and, and pray. Uh, you're just white-knuckling it through life. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you were to get to the original translation, the word that he uses for lust, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, translated originally to Greek and then to us, it, it actually speaks more to, and, and he had a variety and a vocabulary to use that would have spoke to attraction, Spoke to physical desire. But what he's speaking to is, is actually a word that would mean idolatry. It, it, it's, it means literally to put your weight on it, to trust it for your hope and your security. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if, if you think that that person or if entertaining these thoughts is okay, he's like, you've already given your heart, your affection, your worship to something that can never sustain you. That's the issue. Lust, inordinate desire, are whimpering and pining for something that's not ours and not ours to have is actually to put all of our focus and our weight and our, our energy into something that becomes an idol, it becomes a false god. And you know what? We live in a culture that supports that. Two ways I can highlight that. One, one is our relationships. We, we are taught to look for that person who what completes you. You know, I, I get to, I've performed uh, probably somewhere in the vicinity of 60 to 70 marriages. And I still like weddings, by the way. It hasn't jaded me. Uh, but, but why I like them, two reasons. One, like how many times in life do you actually get, go, I'm going to give you my whole day to celebrate and share in your joy. Like culturally, we need to do more of that. But, but also it's this, we are coming to celebrate your promises to each other. And I love to watch that. Because that, that, that's a rare moment in people's lives where they're that vulnerable to be like, you know what, for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, death, do us part, I'm yours. And I just like, every time I'm like, yeah, cool. Because I see the gospel in that. When it comes to our culture, it's going, that person needs to complete you. And when they don't, you, you have permission to trade up. 
or look elsewhere. And that's okay. That's, and it's the opposite. You see, a, a proper relationship says, you don't complete me. I'm, I'm already a work in progress that doesn't need you to fill me. But, but together we get to do that journey together. Rather than, without you I'm hopeless. It's a, it's a terrible power struggle. It will kill you. It will crush your partner. I, I can also point it out this way. Um, if you like Tony Robbins or any motivational speakers of that nature, they've actually weaponized this in a way that we think is good. They'll get up there and they'll be like, you want to know why you don't have the job that you want? You don't have the friends you don't, that you want? You don't have the car that you want? You're not living the life that you should have? And that, the crowd is usually, well, they paid to come. So they're like, yeah, tell me, Tony, right? So uh, he'll be like, it's because you're not hungry enough. Like, I'm like, dude, I could do that job. I feel like, anyway, he, he, you're not hungry enough. You, you need to want it. You need to fixate on it. You need to every waking moment, every day, write it on your fridge, put it on your mirror, make it your mantra. Do, like, this is what they do. What are they doing? They are steeping you in lust, in inordinate desire. Like, my, my whole life is now, like, I am on a trajectory to get that job. I'm, in a, I'm on a pathway to find that person. I'm, I'm moving forward until I get that Lamborghini. And, and, they're, and, they're, and then they have success stories. Why? And we know it to be true. It works. Because if, if you put all your energy into getting that thing, yeah, eventually that will boil over and you will get it. But here's the thing. It will crush you. They don't interview afterwards. And they're like, I got it. And I'm not happy. Or I got there. And now what? Tony, I'm a success. And I don't feel successful. Because it's a, a craving that will consume you. That's why the author says in, 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 in the proverb, he's like, you will have nothing left but shame and regret. Listen, I, I'm about the halfway mark in life. I've tasted enough regret that I really don't want anymore. I know I will experience some because I'm human. But that's why I'm like, let's dial into wisdom, church. Because that's such a bad taste. Like, wisdom says, do you want less of that and more of the sweet stuff? Because the problem that lust, inordinate desire, that whining and pining and whimpering that is really in the bottom of our hearts, it, it's, it's buying into a lie that, you know what, something can fill that that really has never been designed to do that. In, in fact, we, we know instinctively that if we have to be filled, what, what lust teaches us is that we are empty. And actually, that, that, that becomes a good alarm system for us. That becomes a good way of actually dialing into what, what's really going on. In fact, if I were to share with you um, a, what's really a, an, an icky story, 2 Samuel verse 13, I'll just paraphrase it, but you can read it for yourselves. Amon, or Amnon, sorry, one of David's sons, he's said to have a, I'll read, I'll read for you, this is chapter 13, verse, uh, half of verse 1 and verse 2. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her, that's Tamar, his half-sister. And Amnon was so tortured that he made himself ill because of her, his sister, Tamar. You, you hear that, right? He allowed this lustful craving of a forbidden relationship to, to build to such a place that he was physically sick. 
My life is nothing without her. And he actually enters into a, a kind of a, a really twisted conversation with his cousin, who turns out to be this really crafty dude that probably shouldn't be hanging out with. And they create a plot so that he can assault her. And he does. And immediately after doing so, this is what it says in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was great. That's redundant. Then the love with which he had, then greater than the love which he had loved her. Like when you think about that, it's like, why? I mean, I, I have to add to the text here because it doesn't explicitly say, but I think we're pretty safe in, in this guess. It's because he looked to her and thought, if I, if I only have her. And by the way, that he introduces her in such a way that he's, he's, you can see that he's lying to himself. When he speaks to his lustful desires to his cousin, he says, oh, I, I just have to be with my brother's sister. It's like, dude, your sister. No, it's, well, it's my brother's sister. He's trying to create distance to make it okay. And then his twisted cousin's like, well, let's come up with this plan where, where basically you can trap her and take what you want. And after doing so, he's, he's experienced everything he's, fast, he's, he's placed in his fantasies. He's, he's built up in his mind. He's thought that he's finally achieved the thing and, and captured the thing that he wants. And then he realized it doesn't satisfy. And so now what does he have to do? He hates it. That's our hearts. That's how, that's how we operate. You see, Jesus alludes to this, again, Matthew 5, the passage we read, when, when he says, listen, if, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's not being literal. So if anyone in the room is like, uh-oh. Like, he, he's saying, this is, a, this is, you need to deal with this directly. It, it requires action. Church, there were places that the early church didn't go, things they didn't do. And we need to be the same. But moreover, he, he says, it's better for you to kind of limp through life than it is for you to go to hell a complete person. What is, what is he saying with that? Well, the word he used for that is Gehenna. It, it referred to, uh, it was like a fire pit where they burned all the, the garbage outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was one of the many ways in which Jesus depicted and talked about hell. But that image is very poignant for us. It's a picture of consistent and continuous longing and burning that will never be satisfied. That is the trajectory for anyone who falls into lust and to covetousness. And, and the rescue is the only one who can satisfy. Jesus points to himself and he says, listen, you've been made for me and, and I for you. Do, do you not see the parallels that are throughout Scripture as Jesus points to himself? He's like, I am the bridegroom. He's like, I'm the relationship that you want, that you've been looking for. He says, I am, I am the treasure. I am the thing that you, you think you, you should actually have and need and you need to pursue. I am the place. Like, I've come to bring a new kingdom. Where I am is the kingdom. Do you not know this to be true, that some of the greatest memories and stories and events of your life have been good food and drink with good people in a great place? Like, we live by the mountains. I hope you get out there and just enjoy them. These are not ills. T to have close relationships, if God has blessed you with a spouse, to enjoy your spouse in a way that honors and pleases the Lord according to Scripture is not a bad thing. But these things are made that much sweeter and they are highlights to a, a, 
a rightly ordered desire and passion when they follow that of, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving me these things because they highlight you and the beauty you've given me. Church, that's our prayer for you. I know I'm way over time. Sorry, Julie. Um, but I'm going to wrap up in prayer. But my, my, my invitation would be this. Um, if you'd like to hang back after the service and pray with myself or one of our leaders, we'd love to pray with you. We, we know two things. One, the church has not handled this well. And, and I, I'm not saying that as a condemnation of others. I'm saying that as a, a repentant posture. We get squeamish in our seats when we talk about this. And likely because we all struggle. We all think that there's something out there that will satisfy us. Something that's so much easier to pursue than a relationship with a creator God who actually requires us to change. Wants to transform our lives and our hearts. But if you're willing to, to press into that relationship, man, we'd love to pray with you. So let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word and, and thank you for what I, I think is both an encouragement and a warning. Lord, that we are created to be filled and Lord, we ask that you would fill us. But Lord, help us and, and Lord, be prompting hearts today that Lord, have been filled with the wrong things, that have been pursuing the wrong things, that Lord, have been entertaining and buying into the lie that says that thing, that person, that'll fill me. That's all I need. Jesus, if it's, not, if it's not you, kick it off the throne, take it off the, the forefront of our thoughts and our hearts. And Jesus, replace that with you. We love you, God. Fill us. Grant us a hope and a joy in you afresh and anew every day. Amen.